0: The reading today is from Philippians chapter 2, and it's the first 11 verses. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Lord, for your word.
1: Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning hearing your word, and we pray that you would help us to understand it and apply it to ourselves as individuals, but also as a church community we ask now for the help of your holy spirit in jesus name amen so we've got as far as philippians chapter 2 when i saw uh, what verses had fallen to me this time I have to say i was uh, i was really rather pleased it's not always the case <laughs> you just get whatever is the next um, the next passage This is such an amazing, a very well-known passage. It's uplifting and encouraging, but at the same time, the more I looked at it, the more I read it and read around it, I found it to be really challenging as well. And many of you will already have studied this passage in your home groups. In our home group, we're a little bit behind, perhaps, and we only did it this week, Um, I can see David over there is is, uh, smiling, Uh, which actually was a great advantage (laughs) because um, it just reinforced for me the meaning of this passage. So let's remind ourselves first of the context. We know that Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest, probably in Rome, although some commentators think it could have been Ephesus. And he's writing to the young church at Philippi which was a Roman colony in Macedonia which of course is modern day Greece. And it was one of the many churches that Paul had founded with Timothy on one of his missionary journeys. So just to remind ourselves of why he wrote the letter, I'm going to uh, quote from the, the beginning actually of our Discipleship Explored handbook that we're using for home groups. This is what it says. Why was it written? First and foremost, Paul wrote because he dearly loved the believers in Philippi. Perhaps more fondly than any of the other believers, he addressed in his New Testament letters. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. But Paul also wanted to thank the Philippians for the gift they'd sent via their messenger, Epaphroditus, when they found out Paul had been detained. So as he writes, Paul reports on his present circumstances. He encourages them to stand firm, rejoice in the face of persecution, and, as we're thinking about today, urges them to be humble and united he warns them against certain dangerous teachers and reminds them of their righteousness that is theirs in Christ and it says what is distinctive about this letter Would it's been called the new testament letter of joy it's also the letter of koinonia a greek word which means partnership or oneness Koinonia is a word that stresses how communal the Christian life must be. If someone were to say to Paul that they loved Jesus but weren't committed to their local church, Paul would have had little confidence that they were followers of Jesus at all. The word is also used to describe our union with Christ as believers. So for Paul, koinonia with Christ leads to koinonia with other believers. So that's a helpful place to start. This is a letter which is addressed to a community, a church, not just to individuals. So it's very appropriate that we should also receive this message as a church, as it still has much to say that is relevant today, particularly about unity and humility, Now, of course, we know the original letter was not neatly divided into chapters and verses. And it's often the case that we have to read around the passage in order to fully understand the context. And uh, when in in verse one of uh, chapter two, differently translated, it's either translated as therefore or so, you know that you need to perhaps read back a few previous verses because it follows on. And last week, uh, Jason talked about the immediately previous verses, where Paul was talking about living a worthy life and the importance of unity, as they and we face a hostile world. So before I delve deeply into chapter two I'm going to remind us of those verses from the end of chapter one whatever happens conduct yourselves in, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ then when I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, or so... Paul then continues to emphasise the importance of unity among the believers. And as I've already mentioned, he uses this word koinonia, embracing fellowship, participation, oneness, togetherness. And we thought a little bit last week about why, why does that matter? Why is it so important? Well, we know that Jesus himself urged his disciples to be united. John 17, verse 20. I don't ask for these only, that's the ones he was with, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that includes us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So in John 13, Jesus says, by this, that's your unity, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Those are very strong reasons why we should be united, why there should be a strong sense of unity. Love for one another is a very powerful witness. It emphasizes the credibility of the gospel. But Paul is also saying in these verses that our unity, that is working together for the gospel and loving each other, is actually good for us too. Now, you probably remember that I'm quite keen on Tom Wright. And uh, I, uh, (coughs) I looked at the commentary that he wrote about this letter. And I want to just quote um, a paragraph from this about these opening verses. The motivation for unity is set out in verse one. You should want to live this way because you know, all Christians should know, the comfort that comes from belonging to the king's family, from being in Christ. In addition to the comfort that comes from belonging to this family, there should be a growing sense of love within the family, a love that sustains and cheers you from day to day. As the spirit lives within Christians, directing and strengthening them, and as they see one another also being, so to speak, spirit carriers, they can hardly help the sense that they should work together in a single direction. Finally, all this should produce the natural human emotions of affection and sympathy. If, with all this, you still don't want to work at living in unity with your fellow Christians, something is seriously wrong somewhere. We often talk, don't we, about the church family. Where else would you find, as I look around, such a random selection of people all ages, different backgrounds, different nationalities, life experiences, different jobs, different levels of education, all coming together as a church family and ideally sharing and caring for each other. Surely that should be the key defining quality of our church community if you just think for a moment about the best examples of human families, there will be security, acceptance, encouragement, where individual members of the family will know that even if they maybe don't always agree with each other, they are still loved unconditionally and allowed to grow and thrive. And that too should be the ideal for the church family. That is what unity can mean in a church community. Now, it's important to remind ourselves we are talking about unity and not uniformity, distinction which often is made. As it says in verse 2, if we truly love one another and are wanting to be led by the Spirit and reflect the gospel in our lives, then it is possible to be of the same mind. That key verse. If we all want to know the mind or the mindset of Christ, of course, it doesn't mean that we will always all agree on everything, that would be (laughs) unlikely and probably impossible, but rather that being led by the same spirit, we are, as it were, on the same page, we have the same goal. And the practical application will then be that we put others' needs before our own, As it says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Does that sound impossible? Unrealistic? Well, yes, I suppose it is if we are trying to achieve that in our own strength. But we need to remind ourselves we are not on our own. We each have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit living within us. And it is his work, to bring us to Christian unity. Now, in this church, um, we may pat ourselves on the back and think uh, we're quite good at unity. After all, we're an ecumenical partnership, aren't we? And that certainly is is very positive and it's a step in the right direction and something to be celebrated. But of course, it doesn't mean that we have got it all right. And we still have the challenge of being united in love and purpose as we share the transforming love of Jesus with our community and beyond. Another commentator, Alec Martias, says this, Paul saw unity as a byproduct of the great truth on which the gospel rests, but he did not see it as coming about automatically or effortlessly. Paul emphasizes a unison of minds to be of the same mind. The priority task is agreement in the truth. But within this, there is unity in love. He says, having the same love. Notice he doesn't say loving the same things, but possessing the same love. The love of Christ, the mind of Christ. Paul's vision of unity includes mind, emotions, and will. We often talk about making our mind up or putting our mind to something. And we know it's not a passive thing. It takes some effort. And Paul also talks elsewhere about the renewal of our minds. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is very much aware that Christian unity is often under threat. That can be partly because of opposition from outside, such as the Philippian church were experiencing, but it can also be because of pride. It seems probable that Paul knew that such issues were just under the surface, of the Philippian church, which could be why he specifically mentions selfish ambition and vain conceit in verse three. Clearly he believes that both of these could, and still can, seriously undermine unity in a church. I'm sure we can all think of examples where churches have become divided and often therefore have lost their effectiveness because of individual pride or ambition. A warning indeed. And it is this thought that leads Paul onto the second part of this passage. This amazing poem from verse 5 to 11. Now, some people think he's actually quoting an earlier Christian writer, and that is indeed quite likely. Tom Wright calls this an early statement of Christian faith in who Jesus was and what he accomplished, later seen as the classic doctrine of the incarnation of God in Jesus. It is a very famous passage. We don't have time this morning to fully study these verses, you'll be glad to know. And indeed, the theology is it's really quite complex but the intention, the overall intention is clear, and it's just that that I want to talk about for a few minutes. Paul, having encouraged the Philippians to be of the same mind and seek unity, now points them to the ultimate example for them to follow, that of Jesus himself. Verse five, which is, I think, the key verse in this passage, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We've just sung that, what is my probably my favourite here Meekness and Majesty, Manhood and Deity, The Man Who is God, emphasising how humble Jesus was. He had no lust for power. He humbled himself and became a servant. And that word we know actually means slave. He voluntarily left behind the glory of heaven, his rightful place to become a man. In a way that we cannot truly understand, Jesus retained his equality with God, but somehow allowed himself to subject his divinity, his immortality, to death. Surely that was the ultimate proof of God's self giving love. This passage reminds us just how countercultural is our gospel. It would have been in Paul's day and it continues to be today. The greats, the most important people of the ancient world, such as Alexander the Great, or in Roman times, Augustus Caesar, they were heroic global leaders invested with incredible power and acclaim, particularly because of their military achievements. They were both actually considered to be divine in their time were widely worshipped. Now, we were recently on holiday in Greece and Albania about 10 days ago with our son and family. And once again, being in Greece, you see so much evidence of the power and the authority of the Greek gods Even though it's ruins and uh, statues that have fallen down today, it's still there. It still reminds you of the influence that they had. And one of our our granddaughters, Lucia, who's 10, seemed to know quite a lot about the Greek gods. And uh, if you teach um, in uh, primary school, you'll know that um, the Greeks are one of those uh, themes. Um, I, I believe Anna's just done it in year five recently. And one day, she she rather pointedly asked me, why is it that the Greeks had so many gods when we only have one God? I wasn't quite sure whether she felt badly done by there, but um, tempted as I was to explain the full gospel to Lucia, I simply limited myself to describing the God that we worship and reminded her that our God is one God, and is a God of love. There is a world of difference between our God and the gods the Greeks worshipped. Remember, that is the world that Paul was talking in. Jesus of Nazareth, the servant king, could not have been more different to those gods. A God of self giving love who abandoned his rights for the sake of the world, the God who took the form of a servant, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, but also the one at whose feet ultimately every knee will have to bow and confess that he is Lord. And so what what actually can we learn from this passage? What are the challenges? What can we take away? Well, I believe that verse, as I've said, verse five is is key. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, having the mind of Christ. As Christians, we are called to unity and also humility. We are to be of the same mind of Christ, to have his priorities, his principles, his selfless love, and his humility. Well, that sounds like a, a massive ask, doesn't it? But why do we do that? So that the world outside will see and will believe as we love and serve one another and become more like Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And I want to just finish by quoting a a well-known hymn. Those of you who are in the girls' brigade will know this one. The first verse, it's a prayer really. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me, live in us, from day to day, by his love and power controlling, all I do and say, Amen.